Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Rasmus Nilsson, director of the Institute. For today's episode, I'm joined by Fiona Fox, chief executive of the Science Media Center. She works with journalists and members of the scientific community to ensure that accurate and evidence-based scientific information reaches the public and policymakers via the media. Fiona's recent book, Beyond the Hype, the inside story of science's biggest media controversies, looks at her first 20 years at the Science Media Center and demonstrates the vital importance of scientists talking to the media. I'm on the record calling the book engaging, illuminating, and important, and I'm happy to repeat that here. Fiona has won many accolades for her work, including honorary fellowships at the Academy of Medical Sciences, the Royal Society of Biology, and the British Pharmacological Society, as well as an honorary doctorate from the University of Bristol. In 2013, she was awarded an OBE, one of the UK's highest honors for her services to science. Fiona, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So, a lot of discussions of why we are sometimes led astray by what we hear and see start with populist politicians spreading false or misleading information with shock jock television personalities, foreign states information operations, or nefarious actors in social media. Your book uh, starts with the BBC, with Greenpeace, and with The Guardian. Uh, why is there? Uh, what? What? Why is that? Where you started your discussion uh, of the role of media and in and science and some of the biggest controversies of our times? Well, it's not because I think the Guardian and, and Greenpeace and the BBC are the problem. Um, it is because GM was what had to be one of the first chapters in this book. So the Science Media Centre was set up in 2002 and it was after media furores over MMR, GM crops and animal rights extremism stroke research. So GM definitely, the debate, the media coverage of GM was one of the key reasons the Science Media Centre was set up. So it's the first story because of, of, of the book is stories that we've been involved in. Um, however, I think um, it's actually really good the way you've, you've asked this question because I think it isn't just uh, the right wing populist press that brings an editorial line um, to some of these issues. And I think we see, um, and, and it's perfectly legitimate, as you will know, um, and anyone who's um, understands journalism knows that newspapers in particular, it's perfectly legitimate for them to take an editorial line. But it isn't the case that only, only the right wing press therefore mislead the public. If newspapers take strong editorial lines, and if based on those editorial lines, they are selective about the kinds of stories they run, they are selective about the kinds of experts that they want to interview to confirm those editorial lines, then my argument would be the public can often be misled. Um, and, and that I think is, um, I think it's a, um, if that is a point you've taken from the book, then I think that's a good point. We saw it so clearly in, in the pandemic where you've got your kind of Telegraph and, and Mail who were anti-lockdown and you've got your Guardian independent observer who were more likely to be pro-lockdown. And while I reject those, those um, 
representations of pro or anti-lockdown because we're all anti all of it. Um, I think they're a, they're a good shorthand to say that there were very distinct editorial lines and I could sit here and tell you you know of, of journalists from all of those newspapers who explicitly emailed us and said can you get me someone who will support the government doing this or will condemn the government and every time like a mantra we would email back and say no that's not what we'll do and we'll put an open-ended question to the list of um, senior scientists on our database and we will give you the answer whatever that answer is it will be based on expertise we're not going to find you the scientists that will back your editorial line I mean I, I think you give examples here from the last years of uh, navigating the pandemic and the infodemic uh, around it but for uh, people who aren't necessarily across the case of the discussions around genetically modified foodstuffs in the early 2000s or aren't familiar with the form that debate took in the UK, I, I think it is worth just being very clear here that the language you use in the book is very strong. These are the GM wars. Uh, and you write that there were occasions where the public and policymakers were misled. Um, and I highlight that uh, because I, I think sometimes we tend to assume that there was a golden age uh, of the media and that we now live uh, in, a, in a sort of a fallen uh, state. Um, but this is all well before uh, many of the things that tend to drive worries today about what might lead the public uh, uh, astray. And uh, you quote Lord May, the then president of the Royal Society and former chief scientific advisor to the UK government, talking about um, material that the BBC was putting out as hysterically inaccurate uh, and error-strewn pieces of propaganda. And this is a quite a strong language of an organization that, unlike the newspapers, um, is not supposed to have a clear editorial uh, line. Do you want to say a little bit more about um, you know, how, how you feel broadcasters then and now uh, have navigated some of these uh, very high stakes and complicated but also quite divisive issues? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the quote that you use there from Bob May, who was head of the Royal Society and before that who was chief scientist to the government, was actually um, on a drama. And I would, I would make that distinction because it was, it was a two-hour Saturday night drama about GM crops, which was, as I uh, highlight in the book, which was written by um, the editor of The Guardian who'd taken a short sabbatical to do something he'd wanted to do, which was write a drama. The mistake there, or I think what went badly wrong there, was that the BBC started to see this drama as a contribution to the public debate about GM. And we would not have had anything to do with it. Drama is drama is drama. We watch all kinds of, um, you know, unrealistic, mad um, movies every, every night on television. But the BBC were reaching out to the scientific community in plant science institutes. That's how we got to hear about this. Um, saying that we want this drama to kick off a really important debate within the British public about the possible impact of these crops. And the storyline was that GM uh, was jumping um, across the species barrier from a crop in a field trial um, into animals and then into humans with catastrophic consequences. Something that, I mean, any good scientist will tell you that everything is plausible, theoretically possible, but very, 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 very unlikely, including from the scientific advisor to the programme. 
Um, and yet they were doing something different with this drama. They weren't treating it um, like other dramas and they in fact set up a big online discussion. This was the early days of this kind of thing um, in the BBC, an educational discussion that would take place afterwards, a studio debate of experts who would discuss the themes raised um, and some of the media coverage that was coming out from the BBC beforehand as well was that this was an important drama that would be a contribution to the debate. So that was what was really alarming I think and if you if you are going to do that then absolutely you have to go back to the kind of editorial values that you expect the BBC to apply to news and information which is around impartiality and objectivity and accuracy and you're of course allowed to uh, move away from those with drama but this was some kind of hybrid um, and, and that's why it was um, such a big round I think. Um, broadcasters in general I think um, the tradition of um, of newspapers being allowed and encouraged and part of their history to campaign, to take an editorial line, to have campaigning objectives, does distinguish them from the news media. Whatever your criticisms are of broad, sorry, from broadcast media, whatever your criticisms are um, of broadcast media, there is much more of a sense in the broadcast media of sticking with objectivity and, and neutrality and impartiality, whereas the newspapers aren't even aiming to do that. Yeah, I mean, and as you say, of, of course, uh, the BBC would be the first to point out the difference between uh, the BBC News and, uh, and BBC Drama. And I'm sure, of course, that the writers of any piece of drama, whether by the BBC or others, would be very quick to point that out as well. But again, I, I think what you describe has some resonances with the pandemic in the sense that I think many of us will have had sensations of watching a piece of drama, Contagion or, or, or other shows uh, or movies and feeling that they helped us think about the situation in which the world was and perhaps over time might also have influenced uh, the conclusions that each of us came uh, to about what that meant for, for us or those we, we care about and, and for our communities. But if we want to stick with news, um, I want to uh, ask you to tell us a little bit more about um, the sort of motto or principle of the work that you do at the Science Media Center, where you write in the book that the media will do science better when scientists do the media better. Uh, but also it seems pretty clear, Fiona, that you don't trust scientists to do better on their own since you've set up the Science Media Center to help us do it. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how concretely you work to ensure that this interface between scientists and media work better? So I think that, that really does take me back to the beginning of this. And actually one, one person who emailed me just yesterday who, who'd read the book was around at the time and was involved in the um, committee that was set up to help set up the SMC. And the point she made was that you were literally given a remit to improve the quality of science reaching the public through the media. That was how vague it was. Um, so so this that, that phrase that you repeat and, and what we actually do all comes from a period of one or two years of head scratching. And I mean, real life. how do you do that? How do you do that? Um, you, you must know this, Rasmus. I mean, the number of people who whose objective in life, whose aspiration, is, whose passion is to improve the media's coverage of any one of many issues um, we can all talk about it we can all give lectures about it we can all believe in it how the hell do you do it and i just um we, we sat around for a couple of years i would say 
saying how do we get in and actually in some ways the the um the media will do science better when scientists do the media better was almost uh, a, a quick and easy kind of um apology for the fact that we can't change the media there was there wasn't a single newspaper editor or broadcaster who would come and see me and do what I say. We didn't have that influence, we didn't have that control. We we're a, a, a small independent charity set up outside of the media. Uh, we weren't set up by the media at all, we were set up by the scientific community. They're not gonna listen to us. So, so the head scratching really came out with the fact that we're gonna have to find um, what I call kind of pinch points, which bits can we get into? How can we do this on a practical level? How can we make a difference? Um, and none of it can be grand statements or big lectures or this has to be, if journalists don't use us, it's irrelevant what we do. Um, if, if the stuff that scientists is giving to journalists isn't meeting their needs, it's irrelevant what we do. And we just didn't want to be another initiative of which there are many, that do good things there's so many good initiatives out there but but when you really look hard at them they're not making a difference <coughs> so the three things we do are based on that so so how do we get in there well there's breaking news one thing that we have is breaking news so every morning when we get up we are not sure what will be the the the, the news that none of us anticipated um, the example that uh, comes to mind straight away is the day that I woke up, turned on the radio and heard that a Chinese scientist had um, um, genome edited to babies, to actual babies. An approach that is not legal around the world, an approach that um, many stem cell scientists and researchers are interested in pursuing to genome edit um, embryos to protect against serious illnesses but it's not scientifically proven um, there has been no global debate about the ethics of doing it and it was way too soon so i jumped out of bed and i went to the science media center database and we have three thousand very senior top good quality scientists on that database um, they have keywords next to them so we put in all the right keywords and out comes a list of maybe 30 40 50 leading experts on this kind of um, area of science and we say to them it's absolutely critical that you drop everything and give us your reaction to this news and within an hour very very quickly and speed is key we will probably have two three four from people like professor robin lovell badge who works at the crick institute leading expert kathy nikan who is the first scientist globally to apply for permission to the hfea to do this kind of research um, they are coming in thick and fast saying this is wrong, this is unethical, this is too soon, it's not scientifically safe yet, we haven't had the necessary ethical debates with the public. And so that's really great for the journalists because A, they have a stock of quotes that they can copy and paste into their news, which then will be accurate, reliable from, from very trusted experts. But B, they will see that out of the 12 quotes that the Science Media Centre has sent them from a real range of experts in different universities and research institutes, that the vast majority, if not all, are saying similar things. So they can safely say, as the headline of their article, the scientific community condemned 
the news from South Korea that, that this Chinese scientist has genome edited embryos. So that's just a, a little kind of proof of concept. We do that on an almost daily basis. Um, and it's our way in, it's our way of saying to the journalists, you will, like us, you will have only just woken up to this story, you will, as much as you're brilliant science journalists or health journalists or environment journalists, you'll be struggling to work out what are the right experts on this, how can I physically get to them um, in time to put something up very, very quickly, because it's been on BBC, so we've got to get something out. And you are helped to do that. So it's this really nice thing that we've worked out on, you know, how, how, how can we rely on the journalists using us? Then when they use us, what are we giving them that is going to improve the quality and make sure that what the public read or hear on the airwaves is from trusted sources, is reliable and accurate, represents the weight of scientific opinion or the weight of evidence it, it the the media using us is is the most important bit of this if they're not using it it doesn't work but if they use us it's then an opportunity to fulfill this goal and then we do similar things with our roundups it's a bit different because there it's usually studies that are coming out in the lancet or the bmj or science or nature and we have a bit more notice so we will see the study at uh, the same time that the journalists see it, which is often two or three days before the embargo lifts, and we'll be able to identify, sometimes we check with the journalists, which of these studies do you, do you think your editors will want to splash on the front page as the cure, coffee is the cure for cancer, or coffee is the cause of cancer, and again, we, we go back to the keywords on the database and say to these scientists, new study out in the Lancet saying coffee causes cancer, um, and they will read the paper and get back to us and say, um, actually, you know, beautifully designed study from our friends in Oxford and Edinburgh University. However, it's a small observational study. It cannot prove X causes Y. And actually, there are very good quality randomised control trials um, that have been conducted that actually show there isn't a link. So, so you're just, again, you're, those quotes are then copied and pasted into that article. Um, it's not on the front page, it's on page six because it's a lot more nuanced, a lot more measured. Um, and it, it's a way of us improving the quality of the science that people are reading and consuming. So the whole, the answer to your question really is finding those little pinch points where we can make a difference. And that's why we, we, we have that phrase of the, that if scientists do this for us, if they take the time to read that study and give us a comment, if they get up in the morning and, and spend 20 minutes of their day reacting to breaking news, um, they will be used and they will be making a difference to the media. Um, the first uh, case we discussed of GM wars in the UK was early 2000s. Uh... Uh, I think 2002, so the year before MySpace and LinkedIn was created and two years before Facebook uh, was created, whereas the genome editing case that you just described is much later, where hundreds of millions or even billions of people across the world uh, use social media to access uh, many kinds of information. Um, how do you feel that this has uh, changed the work uh, of the Science Media Center? I mean, I should add here, of course, that there are many who are quite worried about uh, the reliability of some of the information that, that circulates on social media and researchers, including ourselves here at the Reuters Institute, have found that in some cases, relying on social media or messaging applications, for example, during the coronavirus pandemic was associated with, with higher belief in vaccine misinformation. 
So how do you feel that the rise and popularity of social media has, has influenced the work that you do at the Science Media Center? Well, I, I'm going to say something that I think will um, surprise some of your listeners. Um, and then I'm going to try and defend it. Um, we, we don't work on social media. The Science Media Centre doesn't do social media. <laughs> and, and I know when I do talks to scientists, I can see the ripple of utter dismay because, as you rightly say, it's social media where most of the disinformation circulates. The nature of social media, the nature of Twitter, where these short messages, just, just everything that people fear about misinformation and, and you know ignoring nuances and not being able... Uh, to explain the science properly, um, it is focused on social media, and yet we don't do social media. But I'm going to defend it on the basis that we're a very small team. So there are five press officers at the Science Media Centre, five of us. And 10 years ago, when you rightly, your characterisation is absolutely right, I mean, there wasn't even 24-7 news media when we set up. We would, we would work with a journalist who would be working on one or two articles for tomorrow's newspaper and they would have the whole day to write them um, and it was usually 800 words or five if it was the the tabloids and, and over the next few years that that print media turned into online media where they were writing five six articles online immediately instantly and, and looking for asking us can you give us fact sheets so we can copy and paste the whole fact sheet to fill up we need to fill up the paper so everything the, the proliferation of social media had changed but also the the way the mainstream news media um, operated had changed so we're very aware of those changes um, but there are five of us and we and back to this point I was making about just an incredibly kind of practical group of people who are saying how and where can we make the difference we believe that um, we believe in expertise actually we, we in, in science we love it um, and, and in our area of work we love it so we are actually not experts on drama on television we are experts on the news. We're not experts on social media. We're experts on the news. <clears throat> but we think that, how, and you know, if somebody did give us a million pounds, I think we would acknowledge that social media um, is influencing the wider public and we would move into working with social media. No one has yet offered us a million pounds. We're actually not allowed to take more than 5% of our running costs from anyone. So no one's allowed to give us more than 30,000 pounds. Um, and it doesn't look like we're, we're going to expand soon. So we made a choice about 10 years ago. Um, on our 10th anniversary, we had a kind of strategy review to maintain that focus and to say to the scientific community, all of whom, by the way, if you go into a university or a research press office, you'll find a completely different answer. They have moved exactly the opposite way. They've moved away from what they call, in a negative way, a media-first approach. We no longer do a, a media-first approach we have embraced uh, you know, our website, creating content, using social. So a lot of press teams in universities and the rest of science are more focused on social media than they are on mainstream news media. Um, we've, what we say to them is we understand now that, that, that your skills in terms of news media have been slightly diluted because of the direction you've gone in come and use us when and if you feel the need and actually couldn't have been more um that couldn't have been a more 
sound decision that we made than in the pandemic, where, as your um, research showed at the Reuters Institute, people were coming back to mainstream news media in droves as, as a more trusted source. So they were still consuming social media and they were enjoying themselves and they were all sharing it. But in terms of, you know, we had journalists who were saying, I did an explainer yesterday about a, a modelling an imperial modelling um, um, data and got three million hits, you know, something they'd never had before. So we maintained that expertise in news media and a lot of people um, came back to us for that. So I, I, I think, um, and I think also Rasmus, again, just um, not so much with your Reuters hat on, but one of the things I found very interesting about the recent Royal Society report about misinformation on, on the internet um, w was a point that jumped out at me um, that actually one way of that a lot of people uh, talk about is to kind of ban misinformation or, or somehow eradicate misinformation from the social media networks. Another one is to create this positive communications ecosystem in which um, good, accurate evidence-based science is proliferating and we see our bit of that as the mainstream news media bit of that many of the stories that end up on social media come from mainstream news media so if we can focus all our energies on making sure that the mainstream news media is covering science in an accurate robust rigorous measured way then that will feed into social media that's a nice uh, segue into the last question. I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on in closing here, which is that um, while I think all scientists are uh, full of admiration when they see science, complex scientific work presented well in the news media, it's perhaps also fair to say that sometimes when scientists choose to express themselves on social media, for example, it's also in part because of a disappointment or a discontent with how science is sometimes covered um, by the mainstream media. I'm a scientist. Uh, I work every day with journalists from around the world, and it's a pleasure and a privilege. And it often strikes me uh, how at the same time these two tribes of scientists and journalists have a lot in common. Both of them are committed to seeking truth and reporting it, even if the nature and pace of the reporting is rather dramatically different between the two of them. But they're also really very different uh, in, in many ways. And you highlight this, of course, throughout your book. Uh, in part, you use a quote from Quinton Cooper, a science journalist who used to work at the BBC, who writes that science values detail, precision, the impersonal, the technical, the lasting, facts, numbers, and being right. Journalism, uh, Cooper's own profession, values brevity, approximation, the personal, the colloquial, the immediate, stories, words, and being right now. And, as he concludes, there are going to be tensions. What do you see in your own work, recognizing the commonalities and shared mission to some extent, what do you see as the biggest tension between science and journalism? I think I, I, I love that quote and I, I particularly endorse the last bit of that quote. We, we, one of the main aims of the Science Media Centre has been to, to encourage the scientific community to have mutual respect. So, so there's been a lot of snottiness, a lot of sniffiness about what you've just described because they do all of those things because they have brevity because it'll be imperfect because they have to have it now that they are inferior to what we do we will spend two years on a scientific paper they will you know spend a couple of hours writing that up 
therefore we are better than them. So what, one of the um, things I want to say is that we, I think one of our successes has been to encourage mutual respect. That is their job, that is their trade, that is their craft, and it is what it is. The fact that you spent two years on this research paper makes science wonderful, but it doesn't make it better. So how about that we have this mutual respect? In terms of your question about where the tension lies, I still think it is this, this thing about news, I suppose, <laughs> the theme of this, um, this discussion, um, the newness. So, so editors and journalists, still see that if it's new, it's significant. And that is really, really not, I would say, I was gonna say not always the case. I think it's not often the case. Um, but by new, what that means is a journal have published it and it's a new study. And yes, it is a new study. But, but when often, when we email and say, can you give us a comment on this study? One of the things I often notice is there are six people saying, there's nothing new here, there's nothing new here, there's nothing new here. And you do, I remember in the early days, kind of scratching my head, if there's nothing new, how did this piece of science get funded? How has it been published? And what you discover, of course, is that it's not very new, it's not scientifically significantly new, but it's one other way of asking the question. So you'll have the question, does coffee cause cancer? Does coffee cure cancer? And then you might have a slightly different question. Does, does Colombian coffee cause cancer or cure cancer? Does Colombian coffee drank during the night have a di so so they're small incremental differences and that is exactly what science is when you when you've asked the question in a hundred different ways and kept asking it and kept refining it you have something called a body of evidence and that's good you know my husband always says to me why should I believe scientists when they you know one says red wine is bad for you one says red wine is good for you but if I took any two studies one would be saying red wine is is quite good for the heart if you have one glass a night and the other is saying five glasses of red wine is not good for your overall health. So it's not that they're both, that they're asking exactly the same question coming to complete, uh, completely different conclusions and therefore we should disregard them. We should want scientists to ask the questions in lots of different ways. But that's the bit where it just feels to me like still the news release arrives and it's in the Lancet or it's in the BMJ or it's in Science or Nature, there's a news release, therefore it's significant. And, and the, the, the editor says, right, big news study out, even if the word significant does not apply to that, because in fact, like I was saying earlier, um, we might, statins, this was such an issue in statins, the, the, you know, it took years, it took 10, 20 years, but there were huge randomised control trials conducted all over the world, multi-centre, the amount of data where they were searching in these trials for side effects of this drug. Um, and they found very small side effects. It is there, but it's very small. Fast forward a couple of years and some university does a little observational study that shows 20% of people get side effects from statins. But it's observational, so you can't prove it. Um, but that is considered new evidence shows that statins give you... And there's no comparison between the quality and significance of this small study, which cannot prove one causes the other, to this, the evidence we've already uh, looked at. 
but it's seen as the same in a newsroom. So I think, and that, if you look at all these third party roundups, quite often what they're saying to the journalist is, actually, this might be new to you, but it's not significant news. And our, our favourite days at the Science Media Centre is when a journalist writes and says, thanks for that. Based on this, I've asked the editor not to run this story. I mean, that's an incredibly important part of journalism, of course, because editing is also uh, making decisions about what not to run. Uh, so I think a powerful reminder of the, uh, the challenges of making the interesting significant and the significant interesting. Um, but also, of course, uh, a reminder that, you know, scientists have a huge responsibility to make themselves available individually or through the Science Media Center or, or your sister institutes across the world to help journalists do their reporting um, and inform the public uh, about science uh, and, and the implications of scientific findings for society. Um, thank you very much, uh, Fiona, for joining us today. Thank you for your work at the Science Media Center and for your book, uh, Beyond the Hype, The Inside Story of Science's Biggest Media Controversies. Um, make sure, for those of you listening, uh, to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Reuters Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletters by clicking the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Thank you, uh, Fiona, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The Future of Journalism. I'm Rasmus Nelson. We'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.